Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that is very proud to know a lot of fathers. Here is the captain. This year at CrimeCon, I got a trophy for the best dad bod. Problem is, I don't have any children. It's good to be seen, and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Grandma Fingers Pastry Sour Blueberry Cobbler. This is by the very creative minds over at Arcane Ale Works. This is a sour ale with blueberries, brown sugar, and cinnamon. 6% ABV, garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And here's some sweethearts that we would like to thank for this week's help with the beer fund. First up, a cheers to Tara T., in Commercial Point, Ohio. And a big cheers to Stacy in Santa Rosa, California. And sticking in California, let's give a cheers to Christian in Fresno. California. And a big shout to Stuart in LaGrange, Georgia. Next up, Captain, we have a cheers to Jessica in Atlanta, Georgia. And last but certainly not least, we have a double cheers to Mary Ellen and Sean, both loyal TCG listeners. Everyone we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com, and they helped us out with this week's beer fund. Yeah, give me a B-W-E-W-R-U-N, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. Thanks for joining us. If you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs, go check out our show on Stitcher Premium called Off the Record. If you're not listening, you don't know. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The most dangerous game 
also published as The Hounds of Zaroff, is a short story by Richard Connell. The fictional work was first published in January of 1924. The story features a big game hunter from New York City who falls off a yacht and swims to what seems to be an abandoned and isolated island in the Caribbean, where he is hunted by a Russian aristocrat. The general plot of The Most Dangerous Game is one that has been adapted many times over the years. The story is inspired by big game hunting safaris in Africa and South America that were particularly fashionable among wealthy Americans in the 1920s. The Most Dangerous Game has been called the most popular short story ever written in English. Upon its publication, it won the O. Henry Award. Here in the garage, we do our best to advocate and fight for the victims of true crime. But as embarrassing as it is, sometimes the draw are the villains. The villain of the most dangerous game is a big game hunter, General Zaroff, who has been hunting animals since he was a boy. He has decided that killing big game has become boring. So he moves to an island and sets it up to trick ships into wrecking themselves on the jagged rocks that surround it. He takes the survivors captive and hunts them for sport. Zaroff gives them food, a knife, and a three-hour head start, and then hunts them down with a small-caliber pistol. Any captives who elude Zaroff, his servant, and a pack of hunting dogs for three days will be set free. Unfortunately for many of the stranded sailors that find themselves on the island, Zaroff proves to be an incredibly successful hunter. The once big-game hunter, General Zaroff, turns serial killer as he hunts the most dangerous animal of them all, man. He kills for sport, for the thrill of the hunt, and for the pleasure of the kill. Zaroff is the hunter, the trapped sailors are the hunted, and the island is his hunting ground and playground. Many of our listeners will think of the Zodiac Killer when they hear the title The Most Dangerous Game. Because of the possible reference in ciphers, that the Zodiac Killer sent to newspapers in the San Francisco Bay Area. When decoded by husband and wife Donald and Betty Harden, we learn that the monster calling himself the Zodiac said, quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun and is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. And in the 2007 film Zodiac, the film version of the most dangerous game is mentioned a number of times. In this week's case, the story of the hunter killing men on an island is even more relevant. But really, anytime we are discussing humans hunting humans, it is relevant. Especially when discussing organized and methodical serial killers. Because that is what they do. Essentially, they hunt. The majority of these types are obsessed with sexual violence. Legendary FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood called these types the Great White Sharks. In his book Dark Dreams, he goes through all the theories about what goes into the creation of a sexual criminal and organized sexual and hate-motivated serial killers. In the end, he reminds us that the most obvious and the most frightening explanation of all 
is that some offenders commit sexual violent crimes simply because they want to. They like it. And they have no regard for what the rest of society thinks. John Douglas, maybe the most famous FBI profiler of all, wrote in his 1995 book, Mindhunter, Serial killers play a most dangerous game. The more we understand the way they play, the more we can stack the odds against them. This is True Crime Garage. No one knows for sure when it all started, it being young women going missing in and around Anchorage, Alaska. Some say it was 1980. Others say it was as early as Christmas of 1971. The only person who knows for sure ain't talking. We will start off in the winter of 1981 in Anchorage, Alaska. Us in the lower 48, when we think of Alaska, we think of the cold and the snow. The average temperature in Alaska in December is between 13 and 25 degrees. The population of the city of Anchorage at the end of 1981 would be right around 175,000 people. On December 2, 1981, Andrea Eltieri was reported missing by her girlfriend. She told police at the time of filing the report that Andrea worked as an exotic dancer in downtown Anchorage. And she was last seen going to meet an unknown male for a photo shoot. Andrea never returned home. She was last seen taking a checker cab to the Boniface Mall around 11 p.m. This is in Anchorage, Alaska. According to our friends over at the Charlie Project, Andrea Altieri was also known by her stage name Enchantment and by a nickname Fish. The young woman is described as a white female, adult with a medium complexion, 24 years of age. She was reported as being 5 foot 5 inches tall and 120 pounds. Miss Altieri had medium to long brown hair that she wore straightened and had brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a black leather jacket, red sweater, blue jeans, brown cowboy boots, and may have been carrying a small flowered makeup bag and a black zipper purse. Andrea was also reported to have been wearing some very distinctive items. And any time, Captain, that we're talking about a missing person, we've always said this, if you can't find the person, you hope to at least find some of the items that they had on their person when they went missing, and it helps to have distinctive, specific items. We've seen that in several cases that we've covered. Here, the distinctive items that are listed are a gold-colored ring with one pearl, a golden-colored ring with two pearls, an antique wedding band set with a rose-set top, and a custom-made golden necklace shaped like a salmon with a diamond set as the eye. The rumors I saw say that she was offered $300 for a photo shoot with this unknown male. So that's a lot of money. That's an attractive offer to someone to go out on this photo shoot be probably roughly around three thousand dollars in today's money yeah that was nearly 40 years ago so i don't know the the uh translation here if you would about the money but 300 bucks is is still a lot of coin today now we have no one that says that they ever saw andrea again and we have her friends 
We have her mother and the Alaska State Troopers who have looked for Andrea for years. And of course, foul play is suspected in Altieri's case due to the circumstances involved. Now, we say we don't know when it really started because it is anyone's guess. It could be when young women started to go missing. We have Megan Emmerich, Mary Thill, and Roxanne Eastland. These women range in age from 17 to 24. All three were reported missing between July 1973 and June of 1980. All were reported missing under similar circumstances. And they had all made some type of arrangement with an unknown male to meet for money. Some were offered money for a photo shoot, some for lunch, some for sex. Just like Andrea Altieri, they have never been seen again. So all these women go missing in the 70s and 80s. And we don't know if it's by the same person. We know all the women were propositioned with an opportunity. Do we know how these individuals were connecting with these women? Because obviously there wasn't the internet back then. I My guess would be at their work or however they were earning their money would be the where this opportunity came from in each of these circumstances. I can't say for certain we're going off of somewhat vague details that are ranging from 40 to almost 50 years old. The other thing here, Captain, is when we talk about it, when it started, it also could be when bodies started to turn up. Now, there was a girl found on Christmas Day, 1971. This was 17-year-old Celia Van Zanten. And then there was the unidentifiable remains that were located in July of 1980. Workmen discovered skeletal remains in a shallow grave while working on some power lines. The body was very decomposed, indicating her death had occurred months earlier. Authorities hoped that maybe some of the items found with the remains would lead to an identification of this individual. These items were a brown leather hip-length jacket, a light-colored knitted sleeveless shirt, blue jeans, and red knee-high, high-heeled zip-up boots. A box of Salem matches were found in a pocket of her jacket, indicating this person may have been a smoker. The victim was also wearing several pieces of jewelry, a handmade metal bracelet with three turquoise stones, a copper necklace containing shell beads and heart pendant, and a Timex wristwatch and gold-plated twisted metal hoop earrings. When this person is found, these items are listed, pictured, and sent out to the public asking for the public's help. Can you help us to identify this person that we have found? The autopsy report concluded that she was likely killed by a stab wound to the back and revealed that the victim was petite, probably between four foot 11 to five foot three inches tall and most likely white, although she may have had a degree of Native American heritage. Her hair color ranged from light brown to strawberry blonde. Again, these remains are very decomposed. They don't know who they're looking at. Some of the things that they are observing and taking note of, they cannot say for certain 
because of the decomposition that has taken place. Right. They believe that this individual would have been most likely between the ages of 16 and 25. Now, the interesting thing that jumps off the page here to me, Captain, is she's falling right in that age range of women that have gone missing. Right. And the body that has already turned up. Well, and just like you were saying, because of their ages, because of the manner in which they're found or not found, can't rule out the possibility that they're all connected. So this person, whoever she may be, to this very day is yet to be properly identified. And she is known as Eklutna Annie. And this is simply because she was found near Eklutna Lake Road in Eklutna area of Anchorage, Alaska. The same month, in that same very area, and with this one, the authorities will have much more luck. There were additional remains found. There were remains found in a gravel pit, and they were listed as badly decomposed as well. She was later identified as Joanna Messina. Two months later, 41-year-old Lisa Fattrell was reported missing. Lisa was reported to last be seen leaving her job for a date. Lisa was a dancer at a club in Anchorage. Then in November of 1981, 23-year-old Sherry Morrow, also known as Sherry Graves and known as Georgia at the club where she danced, she danced at this busy show bar on 4th Avenue in Anchorage. We have these people going missing, and we have some bodies turning up. And all of this with the bodies turning up, this takes us right back around full circle to the lady that we first discussed, Andrea Altieri, reported missing early December 1981. Notice in the missing persons reports, as far as the months go when these young women are going missing, they are sort of all over the shop, right? They're going missing in all kinds of different months throughout these years. But it's no surprise that given the cold temperatures and the amount of snow in Alaska that we are finding bodies. When we are finding bodies, it is limited to the summer months or at least the warmer months. Well, this story will really start to heat up in September of 1982. Remember Sherry Morrow that we just discussed so This is when the body of exotic dancer Sherry Morrow was found near the Nick River by two off-duty police officers who were out moose hunting. I want to read this article because it really lays everything out nicely, especially when it comes to the thoughts of the investigators when Sherry Morrow's body was found. Now, the headline reads, More Graves Sought After Dancer Found. And the article reads... Alaska State Troopers are expected to search for more graves on the willow scrub sandbars of the Nick River, where moose hunters discovered the body of a missing dancer earlier this month. But troopers and Anchorage police say they doubt the murder of 24-year-old Sherry Morrow is related to the disappearance of at least three other dancers from Anchorage since June of 1980. Trooper Lieutenant John Shover said, quote, There's nothing now to indicate that the disappearances are anything other than a coincidence. As Anchorage Police Investigator Maxine Farrell put it, quote, we don't believe that we have a mass murderer out here, some psycho knocking off girls. 
but we have to cover every possibility. Miss Morrow, also known as Sherry Graves, worked at a club on Anchorage's 4th Avenue. She vanished November 17, 1981, leaving her belongings behind. Her body was found September 12th in a shallow grave on a sandbar a mile below the bridge on the Palmer Alternate Highway. Quote, we've got to keep those other girls in the back of our minds, said Trooper Homicide Investigator Lyle Hogsman. The moose hunter said he was checking the area around his campsite to see if I could stir something up before dark when he discovered Miss Morrow's body. The hunter, an off-duty officer, said at first he was unsure what he had found, but was suspicious because he had also found a boot and a jacket nearby. Two of the other missing dancers have been identified as Roxanne Eastland, last seen leaving for a date on June 28, 1980, and Lisa Futrell, last seen leaving her job for a date on September 7, 1980. Yeah, this all seems pretty familiar. We have these women that are either working as sex workers or they're working as strippers, getting opportunities by some guy, and not just a decent opportunity, these are lucrative opportunities, never seen again. But Alaska is a big area, so how how much distance are we seeing between where the bodies are discovered? I don't have the information right in front of me here, Captain. It's probably a good amount of distance. the The difference is in a couple of the cases, there's not a lot of distance. They're the they're found in the same area. I'm just wondering how close to like the Gilgo Beach. Well, in that situation, they were they were walking distance apart. I mean, right. you, you walk down the street and you're finding another another body. Doesn't seem familiar to like the Long Island serial killer murders. Well, that's just it. With the, all these serial cases, they usually seem very familiar. They've there's a lot of similarities that go into the procuring the victims and the disposal of victims and so forth and so on. And then when you get knee deep into it, then you start to really realize the complexity of each case and that there are some things that are very unique to each case. And that's what we're going to see here. What is not so obvious is that you can't just look at a situation and go, okay, well, we got a bunch of women that are missing and wait, now we got a bunch of bodies that are turning up and the missing are not the same as the bodies that are turning up because unfortunately the bodies that are turning up are no longer missing. Right. And you can't just look at that situation and go, well, we got a serial offender here. We got one guy that's as the one officer put it in that article. So bluntly, we don't think that we have some psycho running around knocking off girls. You have three different officers that were there looking for additional bodies. That's what's interesting. We found one body, Sherry Morrow's body, in this area. We're here not only looking for additional evidence in her homicide, they publicly state we're also here looking for other bodies. That is, of course, because we have the missing women that have still not been found. So in this case, I think it's weird because you have three officers stating, we don't think we're dealing with anything that's connected here. Mm -hmm. And I think what's going to back up those gut instincts that they're having when interviewed for this article in September of 1982 
is that they don't find any other bodies in that immediate area. But what they are going to find is going to be related to the forensics. So in Sherry Morrow's case, it took about two weeks to identify her remains, to figure out who are we looking at here. Now, you heard what was said in the article. This victim and the other missing dancers are probably just a coincidence. But it's the forensic work conducted that will tell us otherwise. And that is because investigators found a spent 223 shell casing. The casing makes sense, okay, considering that they were able to determine that Sherry Morrow was shot in the back. Right. The strange thing with Sherry Morrow's case, she was shot in the back, but she didn't have any bullet holes in her clothing that was found on her body. Meaning she was shot naked and then her clothes were put back on her? Yes. Of course, a strong suggestion that she was nude when killed and then someone took the time to dress her before burying her in a shallow grave. So of course they would hope to find a shell casing and they did. They found it near Sherry Morrow's body. But what makes this even more interesting. And of course, investigators are going to learn this fact after this article was printed. They find out that two years prior to that incident, two other women had been found in similar circumstances. The first was that Eklutna Annie, who's never been identified. The second was a topless dancer named Joanna Mosina. In the Eklutna Annie case, evidence showed that the body had been buried at one time, but had been unearthed by animals. So when she was discovered, she's above ground. But they have all this evidence that someone took the time to bury this victim. Joanna was the one that was found nearby Eklutna Annie in a gravel pit. So they found a 223 shell casing at one of these sites as well. So now things are starting to look a lot different. You have two bodies found near one another. One body is that of a dancer. And you have a 223 casing from one of the burials. Then two years later, you find the body of another dancer, Sherry Morrow, and find a 223 case a 223 casing in the dirt alongside her body. So you might have a bunch of missing young women and bodies popping up, but now you have strong reason to believe that these three, at least these three homicides are connected. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. 
Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 
20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at Factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome back. Cheers to the people in the front and in the back. And cheers to you, Colonel. To the people in the back, get some seats up front. They were sold out. <laughs> they were sold out. All right. We talked about now we have some things showing us that some of these cases are probably connected. So let's fast forward about a year. Okay. This is going to take us to September of 1983. When the body of 17-year-old Paula Goulding was found in a shallow grave on the bank of the Nick River. She, too, had been shot in the back. But again, they find no bullet holes on her clothing. So she, too, had been shot, and then someone dressed her before burying her in a shallow grave. Now, we know by reviewing the list of the missing and the bodies that have turned up that we likely have a higher body count than that of what has been recovered. But now a fourth victim is recovered and the remains were left in a very similar manner as remains that were left at a previous body recovery site. So we're seeing a lot of, a lot of connection between some of these victims. And then, you know, you still have several that are out there and that are missing And as you pointed out earlier, Captain, this is a big area. There's lots of space to hide things, should one want to. Well, and the weather doesn't cooperate with the discovery of the bodies either. If a girl is taken and she's murdered and then placed into the woods and then you have weeks of snow and weeks of winter, that really hinders the the investigation. Well, and in some of these cases, you feel like maybe there's a little luck involved for the investigators because the bodies weren't buried very deep. These are extremely shallow graves right? and animals are plentiful in this area and have unearthed at least one of the victims. And you wonder had somebody gone to a, a, a more greater effort, then maybe these bodies may not have been ever recovered. Right. Now, let's get into some info. This is from another news article. This time, listen to how the general thoughts and suspicions of the case, how they have changed somewhat dramatically in the last year. And some of these officers and detectives that are quoted in this article are the same that were quoted in the previous one that we reviewed. This article is titled, Two More Names May Be Added to List of Missing Bar Dancers. And it reads, homicide investigators are trying to determine whether two more names should be added to the growing list of bar dancers who have vanished from Anchorage since 1980. Frustrated police fear six women on the list may be dead. Their bodies hidden in the vast Anchorage expanses. They already know that a seventh woman is dead. While they say there may be more than one killer, Investigators suspect that one man 
may have murdered them all. Quote, he's still here, says Maxine Farrell. She's an Anchorage police homicide investigator who's been tracking the missing women for at least two years. She goes on to say the publicity might have pushed him under a little, but he's here. They, the victims, they're going off with somebody they trust, she says. I believe he's in his late 30s, early 40s, probably clean cut and soft spoken to where the girls feel really safe with him. He may be affluent. If not, he pretends to be. These girls aren't stupid. He's got to be able to show he can pay. I don't think they just ran away. These girls are leaving behind things they would not normally leave. So far, at least seven women, most in their 20s with light hair, most new in town, new to Anchorage, have disappeared under strikingly similar circumstances. An eighth woman whose body was found near Eklutna in 1980 is on the list, but little is known of her. The women often are transients, and when they turn up missing, nobody calls it in. This according to Ms. Farrell. Hunters in 1982 found one of the seven, that was the 23-year-old Sherry Morrow buried on a sandbar near the Nick River. This is about 25 miles north of Anchorage. She was fully clothed and had been shot by a rifle, investigators said. Her shallow grave was located in an accessible area. A second partially decomposed body has yet to be identified was unearthed nearby earlier this month. She too had been shot and appeared to have been dressed. Her grave was in a nearly inaccessible remote area. Police think she is one of the missing dancers, but are awaiting dental records from Hawaii to be sure. Ms. Farrell says records checks now indicate two more women may fit a profile compiled by police. They are Kathy Disher, age 23, who disappeared late last year, and Delene Frey, 20, who was reported missing in September, but may have vanished in March. Ms. Farrell goes on to say, they make me suspicious enough to take a closer look. Also missing are six other women. The first was reported missing in August of 1980, the most recent in April of 1983. Most are dancers at topless and bottomless clubs and bars, police say. One worked in a massage parlor. At least one had been arrested for prostitution, and others were known to the members of the Anchorage Police Vice Squad. Many of them had close contact with their families and friends before they dropped out of sight, she says. That's interesting to me, Captain, because what the officer is telling us there is that these women, as transient as they may be, right. they are keeping in contact with their loved ones, and loved ones have not heard from them. So something dramatically has changed in their lives to put them in a situation where either they're choosing not to contact loved ones or cannot contact loved ones. Well, and I was going to bring up the point because Alaska is one of the places people go so other people don't know where they're at. They go missing on their own. Uh, but like you said, what a great point. These people were, yes, they're in Alaska and they're working and they could disappear at any point that they want to. But the recent past, they were in co constant contact with friends or family members. So it wasn't like they just went off and became 
Alexander Supertramp. I want something on the record right here and right now, Captain. If I go missing or I disappear, I want to squash all suspicions right away. I will leave a note. I will tell someone. All right, put that on the record. If you don't hear from me or you don't find a note, something happened to the colonel. Something bad. Somebody got him. Now, she goes on to talk about the missing again, and she said one told friends that she was going to meet a man at noon. Listen to all these similarities again. Meet a man at noon at a downtown restaurant and then go to a photo session with this man. Another said she was meeting a man at noon who offered her $300 for one hour of her time. Police reports indicate a third woman told friends she was meeting a really neat guy at a restaurant around noon on the day that she went missing. Neat. Very neat. Another was going to a lunch date by cab, and one was meeting a man she said was a doctor. The detective goes on to say of the missing women, with one exception, they all were in their 20s, between 5'4 and 5'7 inches tall, weighed about 120 to 125 pounds, and were slim, usually busty. Sergeant Lyle Hogsvin, an Alaska State Trooper investigator working the cases, says police are trying to assemble a psychological profile to assist the investigation. He says one man, possibly from the Anchorage area, may be responsible for the killing of two women whose bodies were found on the Nick River. Quote, the graves were so similar. Shallow, he says. No great effort was made to bury them. There may not have been time just to know the area where he took the girls. Yeah, it's a local, meaning the suspect. Searchers stalked the river's sandbars during the past weekend looking for more bodies but came up empty-handed. Checks with other states for similar crimes have added nothing. Meanwhile, troopers are compiling a list of names to feed into a computer in hopes of finding another thread quote it's extremely frustrating you think you've got things going but then boom you're back to square one hogsman says if it is a mass killer maybe he's on a mission or something maybe he's got a fetish he's got to do but they are coming more frequently meaning the bodies when he says they at the end of the article now, that article is a little long, and I apologize for that, but there's a lot of interesting things in there. And to me, this is something that I've believed for years and had several discussions with others about, specifically some detectives who hold profilers and FBI agents in very high regard and sometimes higher than they hold themselves. And I've always kind of thought, like, yeah, there, there are people that go to school that are educated, that are trained in the ways of criminal profiling. Right. But, Captain, you and I have been looking at cases that are much older than when profiling really came to be. And one thing that I've always seen in this article fully shows that, that really, at their core, detectives profile a case. They profile the offender, the area where a body is found, the circumstances under which the person went missing. They profile the victimology. Right. We see that right here in this article where one of the officers is talking about what types of girls are going missing and turning up dead, where they're working, about their ages, and really making a connection between the victims, that they're, 
they don't know each other, may not know each other, but they're similar people living similar lifestyles in similar areas. Then the other officer goes on to say, look, this might be why one person would be out here killing all these women. And I believe he's a local and here's why and backs it up with some, some thoughts and suspicions. So in a way, they are profilers. Well, and at this point in the case, that's all that investigators can do is profile. But we get a break in the case because one of the victims gets away. Yeah, that's what's so interesting in this case, because here we have two newspaper articles that are almost exactly one year apart, where the investigators who, one, were tracking the missing women, and two, are investigating the bodies that they, they are finding— say two completely different things. First, a year ago, we don't think these are connected. There's enough. We know enough about the streets. We know enough about the victims in the area that we're working that our gut tells us not connected. Fast forward one year later, completely different song and dance. All of them are saying, there's a chance that they're not connected, but now we feel, based off of what we've learned about the victims in the last year, what we've learned about the forensics and the evidence right. that we're finding at these body recovery sites that they very likely are connected so much so that they're going out of their way to tell the general public, the women that are still missing that we've not even recovered yet, we think are probably connected to what we are finding here. So when you think about all that has changed in the case over the course of that year, the evidence has changed and there's more concrete ways to link the victims together. They are from the same area, living similar lifestyles. Some are missing under similar circumstances. Bodies are being found near one another and killed and or left in the same manner. All of that is happening. But the other thing that happened in this case is Cindy Paulson. Cindy Paulson happened. Cindy was only 17 years old and she is scratching by working as a dancer and sex worker and living in Anchorage, Alaska. On our timeline, technically we are going back about three months, Captain. So now it's the middle of June, 1983. Right. Cindy is out working and she gets in this guy's car. The guy is fairly average looking a little on the ugly side He's got pock marks on his face and glasses and wears glasses. He offers Cindy $200 for oral sex. Now, this is quite a bit above the normal street rate, and she accepts. Yeah, because in Columbus, you can go to Main Street and get a blowjob for a cheeseburger. Well, the two of them agree to drive somewhere, and at some point, this man pulls a gun on her. Mm-hmm. He tells her that he is going to take his time and they are going to do what he wants. And if she cooperates, no one will get hurt. If she doesn't do as he says, or if he's going to create problems for him, he is going to kill her. Yeah. He basically says, look, you're going to chalk this up to a bad experience. You picked the wrong guy. And maybe from now on, if you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to let you free you're you're going to be safe and from just now on you're going to, you might want to be more careful on which individuals you pick up he then put some handcuffs on the young woman and then drove her to what she could only assume was his home where he sexually assaulted her and tortured her 
At one point, he raped her on a black bearskin rug. She was in this guy's basement for a couple of hours. He even briefly took a nap during the ordeal. She, of course, was handcuffed and chained up during that, but she could see all kinds of hunting trophies mounted on the walls of the basement. The man first told her his name was Don, but then hours later, maybe after the nap, he's saying his name was Bob, but she didn't have any reason to believe either name would be his real name unless he did absolutely intend to kill her. Then it wouldn't matter if she knew his name or not, just like the $200 he had promised her wouldn't matter either. She knew he was going to kill her. So after the guy took a short nap, he wakes up and he tells her that he likes her. He really likes her. He said that he had done this sort of thing before. He gets a girl, takes her to his house, and then he takes her up to his cabin out in the middle of nowhere. The two of them will spend a couple days there, and when he is done, he flies the girls back, gives them some money, and lets them go. But he said he really liked her, so he might be spending more time with her than he did with the others. Eventually, the guy drives the two of them to a local airfield. This is Merrill Field Airport where he has a small blue and white plane waiting. The man parked the car and got out and told the still handcuffed Cindy, you're not to move or else, because if you start moving and making a bunch of noise, well, then you are going to get me very angry. And when I get angry, I shoot girls. So she better not upset him. After he left the car to load the plane, Cindy Paulson threw her body into the driver's seat and opened the door. She doesn't have any shoes on. Her hands are cuffed. But she sprinted to the nearest road that she could find. The man turned around and saw her running. Now, keep in mind, this is in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Well, early in the morning, it's still very dark out. The man goes running after her with his gun she runs out onto Fifth Avenue at about 5 a.m. in the morning. She's beat up and handcuffed. Thank God there was someone out on the road, a trucker driving his big rig. And thank God, again, this guy stopped to help Cindy. She jumps in the truck and the two speed off. Now, the guy chasing after Cindy got so close to the truck, close enough that the good Samaritan driver could see that she was being chased by a man with a gun. Right. Not just a man. This man was armed and looked like he was ready to use it. Once in the truck, they're driving off. Cindy asked the driver to take her to a motel where her boyfriend was staying. There's some arguing back and forth between the trucker and Cindy about where they should be going. The trucker really felt like they should be going to the police station. Right. Cindy wanted nothing to do with anything and only wanted to get to the motel. During the course of that argument, it does, of course, come up that Cindy had some reservations about going to the police station because of some of her activities that she was involved in leading up to this horrific event. Right. Now, 
let's go back to the airfield, right? The man that took Cindy captive after he sees her jump in this truck and drive off, now he's going to make his way back to his vehicle and he's going to drive off and get out of Dodge as quickly as he can. But a security guard took notice of all of this strange behavior that was going on. And he wrote down the license plate number on this guy's vehicle. Now back at the motel, Cindy Paulson still hand in handcuffs. She got a hold of her boyfriend and someone working the front desk decided that at that point, you know, whether she wants to or not, I'm calling the police. So the front desk worker calls in the Anchorage police department. Yeah. I also heard that the truck driver drove to the police department as well. I think he did after dropping her off at the motel. Yeah. When police arrived at the motel, Cindy provided a highly detailed account of the abduction. This included information about the man's car, his home, possibly even what street it was on, and the small airplane. She described her attacker as a white male, medium build, five foot six inches tall, 170 pounds, with short brown hair, with crossed front teeth, and acne scars on his face. Now, at this point in the story, Captain, Cindy is in a police car. They are heading for the hospital, as is standard protocol for a victim of a sexual assault. While en route to the hospital, they drive past the same airfield that Cindy said she had run from. This is just an hour or so earlier. Mm -hmm. She, God bless this woman. I mean, she is amazing to be in such a horrific situation and be able to remember such good details. She was able to remember what the plane looked like that he was attempting to load her into mm -hmm. and where the plane was parked at the airfield. She walked the police to a little blue and white plane and this was identified as a Super Cub aircraft, tail number N3089Z. Now, around this same time, the security officer that made note of some strange behavior earlier, well, he is speaking with police. This man's name is Brian Demers. Mm -hmm. He told the police that at 5.14 a.m. that morning, he observed a white male running to a vehicle. The man was wearing a green coat and hat and ran to a green vehicle. Demers was able to provide them with the plate number, Alaska plate number BJZ775. Yeah, so at this point, it's kind of like, ah, got him. But mm -hmm. is this the guy that is responsible for multiple women going missing? Yeah, is he responsible for these other disappearances? Is he responsible for the bodies that are turning up? He's obviously going to look very good for this case and how quickly you have all this information about this dude, because the beautiful thing about things like tail numbers and license plate numbers, they usually lead you directly to somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And you're hoping it leads you directly to the somebody that's responsible for abducting this young woman, assaulting her and trying to take her to God knows where. 
Well, and law enforcement's not going to hesitate. They're going to just go right to his house. Yeah, because very quickly the police discover that the plane was registered to a Robert C. Hansen, who lived at 7223 Old Harbor Road. Now let's cross-reference that with our other tidbit of information here. The vehicle license plate was registered to a Robert C. Hansen as well. Yeah. Now, as far as this investigation is concerned, we're cooking with gas. Now, by this time, Captain, we have had several years of dancers and others reported to be missing. Plus, we have about three years of bodies turning up. So, of course, police and detectives are fully aware that something is going on. They believe they have some cases that might be connected. Maybe they're not. That is in part because when we are investigating the disappearances and the homicides, they took to the streets and to the show bars and to the clubs asking the traditional questions. Is there anyone you suspect of harming so-and-so? Mm-hmm. Or were there any Johns that this victim was afraid of and told you about? Maybe somebody got rough with her or maybe somebody roughed up this woman And after doing the legwork, police detectives had themselves a list of 15 to 20 suspects, depending on which detective you spoke to. This Robert C. Hansen, whose car was seen at the airfield where Cindy escaped her captor, Cindy independently of the security guard's account identifies the plane that belongs to Robert C. Hansen. The security guard independently of Cindy identifies the vehicle as belonging to Robert C. Hansen. Right. So again, things are lining up nicely for police that this abduction and rape case should go quite smoothly for them. But is it connected to any of the other cases? That's the big question mark because Robert C. Hansen was not a name that the responding officers and more importantly, detective Flothy who would catch the case None of them are familiar with this name, and the name Robert Hansen certainly didn't appear on any current suspect list. And on top of that, when law enforcement goes to talk to Hansen, he denies knowing Cindy at all. Are you a True Crime Garage junkie? Do you want to help out the show? Go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really helps the show, but it also helps other people find the show. Show them the way to the garage, as we say. And join us back here in the garage tomorrow for the rest of this week's case. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.